you've had a chance perhaps to uh, discuss those questions, I'd love to hear what you've come up with. Uh, what are some of the changes that you've noticed uh, that, uh, and what are some of the challenges you think for kids growing up today? What did you guys come up with? Just yell it out. You might want to put your hand up. The internet, it's massive it's, and it's relatively new. And we didn't, uh, if you're kind of close to 40, you can grow up with the internet. But uh, yeah, our kids are growing up in a, in a very different environment. Yes, Graham. Yes, okay, so, so it's not simply that the internet exists, but the accessibility of it, uh, so pervasive, yep, what else? Language. Language, what, what, what do you mean by that, Bev? Okay, okay, yes, all right, yeah, so the presence, of, it's more, um, it's tolerated, it's more frequent, it, um, yep, Barbara? Okay. Morals, okay, so a changing moral environment where some things that were right <coughs> aren't right anymore, some things that were wrong are right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Peter. Okay, yep, so church has declined um, in the past 30, 40, indeed 50 years. Yep. Other kind of changes that have been significant since you were a child? Yep. Yes. The whole extracurricular phenomena, like you just went to school and then you went home perhaps uh, a while ago, but now kids are bombarded. There's so many options, activities, so many things they could be doing, so many things perhaps that they are doing. Yep. Any kind of challenges or changes that, uh, any others that you've noticed? You want to kick in with that? Yep. Oh, one more. Yep. Yeah, kind mm. of a respect for authority or an un even an understanding which uh, is where respect may come from kind of is, is lacking in, in your observation. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, kids are very empowered these days. Yes, yeah. Okay, well, at Point, it's, at Point Church, we, uh, we believe that God makes sense of life. And we believe that God even can help us make sense of raising kids in a, what we've just heard, a very complex and changing environment. We also believe this isn't easy. It's not easy to work out how God makes sense. And this is, I suppose, why we exist as a church. We exist to help people understand how much sense God does make of life, and in particular, raising children. And uh, in the forum this afternoon, the aim of it is just to give it, all of us an introduction to the, to the sense that Christianity might make of an often confusing and complex issue. And this is important for parents, obviously, but it's not just important for parents. Uh, it's important for grandparents, but not just for grandparents, for uncles and aunties. In fact, it's important for communities like us as a church and for schools, all these communities and all these people play a crucial role in being involved in the raising of children. They say it takes a village to raise a child. But what if you're not sure where that village is headed, as we've heard this afternoon? 
It seems that there are so many social pressures which are really powerful for kids. There's competition, which is so much greater. There's technology, as we've heard, which is so pervasive, and it's promised to increase our happiness and contentment, but often technology has just brought chaos and danger. And many of us, no doubt, observe that kids are growing up much quicker and yet not really growing up at all. There's this blur between childhood and adulthood. And that means that all these factors come together to make it, it tricky. Tricky being a parent, a grandparent, being an uncle and auntie, and being part of a community project like raising children. And so that's why we've invited Dr. Michael Stead to help us work through this really tricky issue this afternoon. The Right Reverend Dr. Michael Stead is the Bishop of South Sydney and he has a scholarly background in Old Testament studies with a PhD from the University of Gloucester in 2007. He's a key contributor to discussions of theology and governance at a national church level. He's a frequent communicator on behalf of the Anglican Church of Sydney, especially around family issues, some of the things that we're going to be discussing this afternoon. Uh, you may have seen him on TV. Has anyone seen him on TV? No. Have you been on the project, Michael? No. No, you've got to get yet. on the project, then they, they would have seen you. It's a delight. Even though he hasn't been on the project, it's a delight to welcome you here this afternoon. So I'm going to get you up the front. Why don't we give Michael a clap? I'm going to ask him a couple of questions. I think his mic's working. Why don't uh, yeah. you say a big hi? Great. Hello, now, everyone. Uh, Michael, you've been a bishop now for close to three years. Uh, many of us, including me, might not be quite sure what a bishop does. Can you tell us, what does a bishop do? I've got two jobs. Um, I'm a regional bishop in Sydney and I look after a region of churches, one of which is this very church. My region is the South Sydney region, which isn't very south, it's more west than inner west. Um, but I've got 50 different churches and looking after churches means going around to churches Sunday by Sunday, encouraging the ministers, uh, working with wardens and parish council when they have property issues to deal with, uh, trying to help gospel ministry flourish in, in each of those 50 churches. The other half of my job is to do whatever else the Archbishop of Sydney asked me to do. Each of the bishops get different portfolios of responsibility. And so I've got responsibilities around um, marriage and family um, and around the doctrine of our church. And so I'm involved at a national church level on all of those things, as well as some international Anglican stuff. I'm about to go to Israel next week for a conference of, of a, a, um, worldwide Anglicans called GAFCON. Great. And tell us... Um what were you up to before you became a bishop? Um, before becoming a bishop, I was a parish minister in Taramara. Um, I spent 15 years at Taramara um, and, yeah, did, did what so Stu did a, there. It's a wild place, Taramara, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's, yeah. it's a wild yeah, it's place. A, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the wrong side of the creek from where we are. Yeah. Now, um, you're married with three kids. Uh, can you tell us, firstly, a little bit about what your experience of growing up was like? Yeah. And then, can you tell us a little bit about your family? Um, what family life looks like for you as a dad, a busy dad? Um, yeah, we'd love to know. Yeah, Thanks. sure. Well, 
I thought it might be helpful if I kind of answered that first question that you were all talking about. Well, what have I noticed since I was growing up? And I was reflecting with my dad about this uh, yesterday. We were having a big Stead family gathering, and we both realised that there'd been a kind of seismic shift that's happened in both of our lifetimes. So I'm now 49. I was born in 1969. Dad was born in 1945. His younger brother is eight years younger, and my cousins on that side of the family are all... Uh, 12, 13, and 15 years younger. So there's a kind of half a generation between dad and his brother. There's a generation between me and my... Now, as we each reflect on what, what it was like when we were growing up, we've noticed there was a real change that occurred between uh, when I grew up in the 70s and my cousins grew up in the 80s, uh, the way that my parents parented us as parents who were born around the, the war, as distinct from my dad's brother who was born in the midst of, or grew up through the sexual revolution of the 60s. Uh, there was a real seismic shift in the way that people grew up. Um, and I'll, I'll reflect on that a little bit later when we talk about what has changed in society. But something happened in the way that kids were raised in Australia in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, which is still, the, the after effects of that are still flowing out. Um, so that's, that was my growing up. Um, grew up in Sydney, grew up on the, on the northern beaches of Sydney. Um, I'm married, I have three children. My eldest child is 22, I have a daughter, that's my son, my daughter is 19 and my youngest is 16. Um, my eldest son is en route to, in fact he's just arrived, quite literally would have flown into Washington as we speak, um, uh, to do a, a two-month internship in Washington on Capitol Hill with a, a, senator, with a, a congressman there. Michael, we're really looking forward to what you're going to say. Uh, Michael uh, is going to give us a presentation uh, for around 20 or so minutes, and then after his presentation, uh, I'll moderate an extended time of question and answer. So uh, if you've got questions as he's speaking, uh, just note them down perhaps. There'll be a, a really uh, excellent, I hope, uh, chance for us to discuss together some of these questions off the back of Michael's presentation. So I invite you, Michael. Uh, to address us on growing up with or without God. Thank you. Thank you. In my little introduction then telling about my growing up, I was reflecting on the fact that there's been a change in the way we think about values in Australia. That, I think, has the, the, the thing that has really changed. The things that we would say we'd identify as common shared values over that time. Before I talk about why I think those values have changed, I, I guess I want to demonstrate to you the, that things have changed. And I want to point to three trends uh, in society that I think we'd, we'd all recognise. And I want to see if I can explain where these trends have come from. The first trend is the growing epidemic of health issues, particularly mental health issues in young people. Uh, depression, anxiety, eating disorders are spiralling uh, out of control. Um, I've got a psychologist friend of mine who specialises in working with adolescents and young adults and he said that in the last 15 years his profession, psychologists, have never, have never focused more on resilience in young people. That's been the buzzword for the last 15 years or more is how do we develop resilience in young people and even though they've been, never been doing more to build resilience, uh, are they never have they seen uh, more and never have they ha had more and more problems with children with lack of resilience? So there's an issue with the frig fragility of, of our kids. Why is that that they're experiencing these mental health issues at a growing rate? Second trend is an interesting one. There is a growing enrolment in church schools 
at a time when um, the national religious life is on decline. So you're probably aware that the census numbers, it's only just above 50% of people identify as, as Christian, um, and that number has been trending down steadily uh, for the last 20 years or more. And yet at the same time, uh, the, attendant, the shift from public schools to private schools has gone the other way, and the shift is very much towards the church schools. Um, I was on the board of Barker College, one of these church schools, for about 10 years, and every year we would do a survey of, of parents to find out what it is that they valued about the school. And the really interesting thing was that the majority, most of the parents, by, by far the majority of the parents, were not Christian and would not identify as religious people, uh, but they said they had chosen to send their kids to, to this school for three things. They wanted the, uh, the kids to be taught values. They weren't quite sure what these values were, but they wanted, they wanted values education. Uh, they wanted a place where there'd be discipline. The kids are out of control and we need a firm hand to discipline them. And they wanted a school that would uh, promote they would say academic excellence, I think it was all about the HSC, but it was actually about a sense of achievement and drive. They didn't want the kids to just think, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. They wanted, they wanted somebody to push the kids along. Um, third trend uh, that, that's been happening uh, over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, and uh, again, tell me, tell me if this resonates with you, uh, the, the next generation uh, seemed to be an entitlement generation. There's a rising entitlement culture where uh, um, there is a sense that, 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 at least more so than previous generations, um, the, the world, not, it's not just the world is their oyster, but the, the world owes them a living. That They are the most important person in the world uh, and the world has to bend around them. Now, my, my question is, uh, what, what impact has, uh, like, why, why have we got this rising, these, these rising trends? Why are we having young people struggling with mental health issues? Why are we getting more and more parents saying there's something wrong with our state system that we need to turn to church systems, even though we don't believe in the God behind them, to, to help educate our young people? Uh, why are our young people turning out with this sense of entitlement? Well, I want to suggest to you that what's actually happening now is the outworking of changes that began in the 1960s and the 1970s and the 1980s, but it's taken a long time for these changes to ripple through. Uh, my argument is that these changes have emerged because we've abandoned the foundations of a, a Christian heritage, a Christian way of thinking about the world, a Christian way of thinking about people, and a, a, as a result, we're beginning to see these changes bubbling up in our children. Our, our society has rejected what I would call the Christian meta-narrative, not realising that what we're doing, it's a bit like that cartoon I remember as a child where somebody is soaring off the branch but they're, of course they're on the branch that they're soaring off. Uh, well, that's what our society has been doing. It's been built for 2,000 years on these understandings of society, the human person, all of that. Uh, you, you abandon those foundations, it, it's inevitable that society will break. But the thing is that it doesn't break immediately. We are a cut flower society. We are a cut flower culture. And what I mean by that is, um, I bought my wife some lovely flowers yesterday, and they looked at them this morning, they're still beautiful, purple, all in bloom, but the reality is that they are already dying because they are cut, but you won't actually see the decay until three, four days, whatever. Um, but th th the reality is they're already on the path of decline. It just takes a while. That's where we are in our, our Western culture at the moment. Uh, we've severed the connection with God, and for a time, uh, uh, life continues as normal, 
but eventually, because we've lost connection with the thing that actually gives sense to the whole narrative, it all breaks down. So in my case, um, going back to my story, I was born in 1969, mum and dad at that stage were not Christians, but they had grown up in Christian households, and they had brought with them a, a, a Christian heritage, and so they taught me Christian values, they sent me along to church, uh, and they, they kind of passed that on from one generation to the next. Um, Remembered values typically only last one generation. And so my parents' parents were Christians. Uh, my parents' generation remembered those values and they managed to pass them on to my generation. Many people in my generation were in the same situation. That is, most of them went to Sunday school on the Sunday. They went, almost everybody went to scripture in school. Most of them didn't become Christians, though, and most of them have now uh, given up on any of, of the Christian memories of not just their parents but their grandparents and that's why things start to unravel. These remembered values fade over time and, uh, and so it's when the next generation starts to raise their children, they're not raising them with the same shared foundations. So this is, I think, the, why, what the difference between my upbringing and my cousins who are about 15 years apart from me. Radically different understandings um, even though they were brought up by two brothers who showed shared the same heritage. What's different? What, what had changed? Well, um, what's been abandoned is a biblical way, a, a Christian way of thinking about who, who people are. And there are three things I want to focus on in particular that are part of this biblical foundation that's now been abandoned. Uh, firstly, that we are made in the image of God uh, and what that means is uh, there is a, a, a creator of the universe who made us. He is a perfect God who made us just the way he wanted us to be. We are precious to him. We were made for a relationship with him and, and with other people. And he actually has a purpose for our life. Our life is not just meaningless and random. We're, we're not just uh, it, it evolved from some primordial soup with no purpose in life. No, there's actually a God who made us and made us in his image. Secondly, this God made us a particular way. Unlike the ancient Greeks who believed in gods who um, basically they determined everything and so since all of life was determined, it didn't really matter what you do because the fates would determine your end. Well, no, uh, according to the Bible, God made us uh, as, as free agents. He gave us a will. He made us rational and volitional beings who could make choices. We could do things or not do things. But interestingly, that also means that given the ability to make choices, it also means that there's a responsibility for the choices that you make. You're, you are held accountable uh, for the, the, the bad choices. You're answerable ultimately to God. And the third thing that the Bible says about uh, human beings is that we are flawed but Forgivable, and it's really important that you hold those two things together. So, firstly, nobody is perfect. Uh, we we get it wrong. So, not only are we unable to achieve everything we want to achieve, so we're flawed in the sense that we are short of perfection, but we're actually flawed in the sense that we do wrong things. Even though we know what it is to tell the truth, sometimes we tell lies. Even though we know we're supposed to love, sometimes we hate. Even though we, we know we're meant to be selfless, sometimes we are selfish. And that's no matter how hard we try, that's the reality. We are flawed. No, nobody is perfect. But the thing is, 
we're also forgivable because God doesn't hold those flaws against us. Uh, no matter what we've done wrong, not, there's nothing that we do that God can't f- forgive. And the way that God forgives is not because we have to earn our way back into his good books. It's not as though we have to uh, uh, offer a mountain of sacrifices to make God love us. No, God loves us all the same and will forgive us no matter what we've done. Now, when I was growing up, as I said, th- they were the things that consciously and unconsciously shaped the way that my parents raised me. So from the outset, I remember um, being told, like, we, we love you for who you are. You are, uh, you are perfect to us. You're not, you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But you are, you are just the way that God made you to be, and that makes you special, and, 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 uh, and that makes you valuable. And, and more than that... Um, God's made you to be his person in this world and you should do the right thing and you shouldn't do the wrong thing and we're going to discipline you for doing the wrong. There is a very strong sense of right and wrong that I remember as a child. Um, I I remember knowing that uh, I didn't have to be perfect. In fact, I couldn't be perfect. That was okay. Mum and Dad still loved me even though I wasn't perfect and indeed God still loved me because I wasn't perfect. And I knew unconditional love from my parents and that kind of pointed to this idea of unconditional love from God. And the pathway to redemption, if I did the wrong thing, it didn't mean I had to earn Mum and Dad's approval to make them love me again any more than I had to earn God's approval. All those uh, biblical foundations about thinking about human beings, they were part of the way that I was shaped as as a child. And um, it actually made sense of life um, because I wasn't perfect and I got things wrong, but mum and dad still loved me um, and they helped me to grow into the human being that God had made me to be. I'd been made special in the image of God. I had special abilities and they would help me find and excel in those things. What, what's happened uh, as our society has rejected that uh, foundationalist approach to life, that is, there is a God out there who made us, who's determined what is right and wrong. He's the one that actually gives sense to life. As people have cut themselves off from that, that mooring, given up on God, uh, it has an effect on the way that you think about yourself. It has an effect on the, on the way that you think about how you raise your children. What's happened is that we've substituted those Christian foundations uh, with uh, what I would say would be counterfeit foundations. So instead of the focus of being made in the image of God and my self-worth comes from outside of me, I know I'm valuable because I matter to God, human beings are now self-made. Uh, we, we are the ultimate arbiters of, of um, uh, you, you can be who, whoever you want to be. Um, even to the point that these days you can, you can choose your own gender. So you, you can decide, look, I, I, I don't want to be a man, I, I want to be a woman, I can remake myself in the image of, of, of a woman, um, I can be whoever I want to be because ultimately the self is the final arbiter of, of who I'm going to be. I'm not answerable to God. Uh, secondly, when it comes to responsibility, um, the self becomes the arbiter of, of right and wrong. Uh, self uh, or autonomy means self-law. No, no one can tell me what to do because I get to define what is right and wrong. I, I'm, I'm the ultimate moral judge now. And, and finally, uh, self-arbiter in the sense of uh, no one gets to tell me uh, that, that I am wrong anymore. Um, 
the whole idea of being flawed but forgiven is chucked out the window. Instead, everybody lives under the illusion that they are perfect. And the, the way that you do that is you just redefine what perfect means. I'm a good person um, because I, I, I live up to my own moral code. I become my own judge of what is right and wrong. What kind of an impact, what, what impact does that have on parenting? Well, it, it really changes the way uh, uh, people build their self-image. So when I grew up, I knew that since I was made in the image of God, uh, I mattered to God, and ultimately, that's where my self-esteem came from. And my parents would tell me, uh, well, uh, you'll be good at some things and you won't be good at other things, and that's okay, God's made you to be good at some things and not other, and, and you shouldn't be jealous about other people who are smarter than you or faster than you or stronger than you. In fact, you should be rejoicing at their success. Well, you can't do that anymore because... Uh, when we raise our children, we teach them that every child is a princess and every boy is a superhero. Everybody wins a prize now. Like, uh, we, I remember growing up, there were definite win, winners and losers and there'd be some people who'd go home from the kids' party because they didn't win the prize when they passed the parcel. It doesn't work anymore. Everybody wins a prize at passed the parcel now. Um, we're, we're in a world where there, there, there can't be winners and losers because everybody has to be a winner. And what happens is that kids go through school believing that uh, everybody is in the top 20% of the population. Now you realise statistically that can't be right, but that's how our kids have come through high school. Uh, they, they don't have any sense of, uh, um, of, of assessing themselves relative to other people because if they do, their self-esteem can't cope with the idea, actually, I'm in the bottom 20% of my year. Do you realise in any group of children there is going to be a bottom 20%? In our schools, nobody knows who's in the bottom 20% because you don't talk about that kind of thing anymore. And what happens is that kids emerge from the, the, the hothouse of the schooling environment to the university world or the working world where there are, in fact, winners and losers, and they can't cope with the idea that actually um, they're not perfect. I, I was talking to a, a, a partner at Pricewaterhouse where I used to work a long time ago, and he was saying, you know, it's remarkable. I was talking to a new graduate, and um, the, he'd just done a performance appraisal with this guy and uh, he had ra ranked him as meets expectation. And in, in that, that world, meets expectation means exactly that. You've done everything expected for, as a first-year graduate. This, uh, this new graduate was in tears because he said, I've never been anything other than exceeds expectation for all of my life. You think, what a, what, what a, what a burden to carry, to always have to be uh, above expectation, but that's what's happening because people's self-image is defined by themselves. They've got no external arbiter. It doesn't, they don't have God who can say, yeah, you're, you're okay with me. And so they're constantly trying to beat the people around them. And of course, that just leads to this ever-increasing uh, uh, e stress, which is feeding into the growing epidemic of mental health, health issues of our young people. Um, Secondly, in terms of discipline, uh, what, what's happened because we've abandoned the idea of moral right and wrong, uh, every individual gets to be the arbiter of, of these things, uh, it means that we don't tell kids that they're wrong anymore. In fact, they're, they're, they're not wrong, and Christianity is seen as a, an oppressive thing because Christianity says there are some things which are right and some things that are wrong. This is, is guilt-tripping people, and we can't tell children this, and even at the extreme, some people will say Christianity is harmful for children, for their mental 
mental health. It actually works the other way around, that uh, children who grow up never having a sense that things are right and wrong um, uh, go, go through life looking for some kind of moral absolutes and not finding it make themselves the moral absolute. And at the end of the day, the, human, the, the individual human being is not a good judge of, of what is right and wrong. The third uh, symptom that we see uh, of this uh, outworking itself uh, is when it comes to people's own opinions about their opinions. Um, uh, what's happened, uh, again, in my lifetime is we've gone uh, from uh, the situation where people could be right or wrong about things uh, to the, the, the mantra that everybody is entitled to their own opinions, and that can even mean opinions about facts, and you're not allowed to question people about what they, uh, what they believe, and indeed, if you do that, um, you, you can be uh, shortlisted, or you can be uh, um, black banned from, from speaking on public platforms because you're challenging the way that people think. People, you're not allowed to uh, expose people to ideas that might be confronting for them. So. This is, my, this is my diagnosis of what's been going wrong in, in, in our world. What's happened is, 20, 30 years ago, we've started that process of uh, cutting off our moorings from these Christian ideas about the human person, uh, and, and like the cut flower, we are now beginning to see the outworkings of that, and it's showing itself in, in our children, our children who don't have a sense of right and wrong, who, our children who don't have the resilience to be able to cope in a world where they don't always get it right, and, and life isn't always perfect. Our, our children who have grown into a culture that has made themselves the centre of the universe, Universe, and we wonder why they're growing up to be selfish and self-centred. All of these things are an outworking of abandoning our Christian heritage. So what do we do to recover the foundations? Well, as I finish, let me, let me sketch out a couple of ways back. Um, I think, first of all, we have, to do, we have to start with Jesus. You can't find a better model uh, than Jesus uh, as the one who always lived for others, who always uh, uh, lived under God's authority, who always demonstrates what it looks like when you're uh, living as somebody who's made in the image of God and is, is seeking to relate rightly to God. And so uh, Jesus becomes the model for way that we relate to other people. Uh, how, do we, how do we enact that in the way that we raise our children? What's our method? Uh, it really has to be shaped around this whole idea of grace. I touched on it before, but let me, let me expand on this idea. Uh, at the heart of the, the Christian message that is that we are flawed but forgivable, and the way back when you make a mistake is actually to say, I'm sorry, God, I know I've done the wrong thing, please forgive me, knowing that God will forgive you, that you don't need to earn your way back into God's good books, merely turning around, uh, saying sorry, asking forgiveness is the way uh, to, for, for, to, to be restored. And that's got to be the way that we, do, we, we, relate, uh, we, we teach our children to relate. If you teach your children that, we'll only forgive you if you earn your way back into mummy or daddy's good books, uh, they'll grow up with this... Um, the, the sense that they can never be good enough. Uh, we need to relate to our kids the way that God relates to us. And thirdly, what is the matrix? Um, sorry, I had to fiddle here to try and get my three M's on my outline. How do, how, where do we do it? Do, where do we do this? I want to suggest that the best place for raising kids is within the context of a Christian community. It's the place where you can share the burden of parenting. Parenting is hard work. Um, 
and doing it with other people who share similar values to you, a similar way of thinking about the world, means that your kids are not just hearing it from you, but they're actually seeing it worked out in a whole community of relationships. Uh, my wife and I have had our own challenges with our kids, uh, without going into any details. Uh, with one of our kids, um, there, there's uh, significant physical disabilities, and so she has to live with uh, the idea of being different and um, uh, feeling inadequate because she, she's deaf, and, 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 and how do you cope when you're broken in a perfect world? Uh, we had another child who's got learning difficulties, who has always been in the bottom 20 percentile of just about everything he's, he's ever done. Uh, we've had another child who's had some sick significant moral failures who, again, we've had to kind of bring him back from those things. So it's not as though um, I, I'm, I'm saying just do what I say and you'll never have any issues with parenting. But let me tell you that being able to raise our kids in the context of a Christian community has made all the difference. So uh, our kids have been exposed to one set of ways of thinking about the world as they've gone through school and now university, a quite secular, negative way of thinking about human beings. But balancing that is being part of a Christian community where they're seeing another narrative played out. And what they're actually seeing is a narrative that works. They're seeing, for the most part, kids who have all their ups and downs and still have their anxieties and, and, and all of that, but they come out the other side because they've got something to cling to and, and that actually helps to give them hope as well. So then, uh, what, what, what are the, the final tips? How do you actually put this into practice? Uh, it all comes down to parenting in the image of God. So this is my, if you've got nothing else from the talk, this is what I want you to take away from it. Uh, the, the, the best way to raise kids in a, uh, um, a difficult world, in a changing world, is to parent in the image of God. And what that means is loving them, disciplining them, and forgiving them. But loving them based on a Christian foundation. What I mean by that is loving as we are loved. Now, there'll be some people here who are Christians who know what that means, but for people who aren't Christians, uh, let me just unpack that. Uh, Christians understand that uh, we are loved no matter what. Unconditional love. God loves us because he made us. Uh, God loves us because he created us for a purpose. God loves us because he wants to be in a relationship with us. And that doesn't change when we fail, doesn't even change when we are shaking our fist in open rebellion against God. God's love is unconditional. Parental love has to be the same. Uh, we love our children uh, not because they make us feel good. They achieve in the world in a way that we didn't quite achieve. They, uh, they, they, they will provide for us in our old age. I don't know what are the motivations you have for having children, but the, no, the reason why you love the children is because um, they're actually from you. You've made them. Uh, you love them for who they are with all their faults and their foibles and that doesn't change based on their performance. Secondly, uh, that we discipline our children as God disciplines us. God disciplines us because he loves us. Uh, part of the, the reason why kids have gone off the rails in Australia in the last 20 and 30 years is there's been uh, an, an unwillingness of parents to actually set the boundaries and say what's right and wrong and call people to account um, and to discipline them when they break the rules. And uh, th that might sound like that's a, a really great thing to do, and, but it's actually terrible for children uh, because it doesn't teach them that there are boundaries and there are consequences for doing the wrong thing. It doesn't teach them that, uh, that they are loved enough to stop them from doing themselves harm. And so we, we need to discipline our children out of love because that's how God disciplines us. 
And finally, we need to forgive them the way that we are forgiven. As God forgives us unconditionally, graciously, uh, not making us earn our way back into his good books, simply when uh, our children come back and say, Mum, Dad, I'm sorry, I've done the wrong thing, will you forgive me? to throw our arms around them and welcome them back and uh, um, to, 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 to forgive as we are forgiven. So there's, uh, there's my diagnosis for wh- what, what I think has been going wrong. Uh, there's my prescription about where we go on from here. Uh, now I think we're going to open it up to some questions. Um, I think that's right. It is. Is this one working? One. How are we going here? Working? Great. Thank you, Michael, for that. Um, very, very stimulating. I've got um, a lot of questions, but we might just start off with uh, seeing if there's any kind of quick questions that first come to mind, and then I've got a couple of follow-up questions. So any um, initial questions or comments that you might have from uh, the way in which Michael's given us a, a, an overview of where he sees our world heading and where it's come from, and the sense in which that Christianity might make in terms of parenting and raising children in a complex and changing world. Any questions or comments? I'm going to uh, come round and uh, you can ask your question or comment into the mic so we can, everyone can hear it. There you go. You must it. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. I might just repeat that question yeah. for the sake of everyone who um, may not have heard it. So uh, often... Uh, a modern way of thinking is that uh, we subcontract parenting to uh, perhaps a school uh, to teach values. Do you have any comments on that kind of approach and uh, how we've got into that and what you see as a helpful response in terms of a parent's responsibility? Yeah. I- I think that there, there is a real problem if the values that are being taught in a school are inconsistent with the values being taught at home, then the kids will say, well, why should I do what the teachers tell me? Uh, picking up an earlier comment uh, about respect for authority, uh, that's one of the values that you might pick up at a school like Barker, but if, if they come home and the, the parents show no respect for authority, and, uh, uh, then, then that's why they're not going to... So no matter what they do at school, the kids are going to learn. It doesn't really matter what we do. That's just the value that I put on while I'm at school, unless it's reinforced in the home. It, um, it's, it's not going to take. I agree. Discipline at home is reinforced in the school, values at home reinforced in the school. But if you get the disconnect...
Thank you. Very, very helpful. Yeah, mm. very helpful point. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you very much. What other kind of comments or questions uh, might people have? If, if you're not um, able to ask questions, there's something that you'd like to ask anonymously, you can uh, text it. It's to my phone number. It's not particularly fancy. But uh, you can text a question if you'd like to uh, ask one anonymously. Any kind of questions or comments coming out of Michael's talk? Observations? Over here, right. Better, better give this woman a question, right. <laughs> I just thought I'd add to what you were saying. I used to teach at a um, private school, Christian Studies. It wasn't a Christian school, so our department wasn't particularly well respected within the school. And I had a problematic student in one of my high school classes. So I asked in parent-teacher interviews if the parents would come for a meeting with me. And I saw them walking around the hall a few times. Eventually they made their way over to me. And the father looked me in the eye, with the, with the son sitting next to him, the children came too, and he said, how long does he have to do this subject for anyway? I thought, <laughs> well, here is the problem, isn't yeah. it? And the same thing happened, other, other problematic students I asked to come for interviews, and the parents wouldn't even, they'd walk past me, they wouldn't even sit down. So it is a bit of a problem, yeah, inconsistency. Yeah. But so what happens is that it's probably the parents' generation would still be saying, well, yes, they've been brought up to believe in respect for authority, just to pick, pick an example. And so th those values have been inculcated in the parent. They're not going to be inculcated in the child. And the parent's forever wondering, why, isn't, why is my son off the rails? Well, the answer is it's actually the outworking of the attitude that you're communicating. Just on that, Michael, do you think um, we're giving schools uh, too much responsibility for the raising of children? This is um, both in mm. state schools um, in that context, but also in church schools, are actually parents expecting too much out of a school for the moral formation of their children? Yeah, my, my view is that the, the school can only ever enhance what's happening in the home. Um, and so, yes, schools can do things to uh, continue to do what the parents are doing, but they'll, they'll, they will always struggle uh, when what they're doing is, is being opposed by what the parents are doing at home. And so the, the parents who will not discipline their children, but they send their children to private schools for discipline, it, ultimately it doesn't work. It, all it means is the kids are disciplined while they're at school, but they still grow up uh, knowing that you don't have to obey authority. Great, yep. Other kind of questions or comments coming out of the talk? Graham, thanks. Our, our Western cultures are, are beaten based on the Judeo-Christian foundations of, our, of, of God's plan for his world. It used to work. Now it doesn't. And the moral authority that you've been, been talking about and where we need to be grounded is, if we believe as Christians, is grounded in, in God's grace and love and mercy for us. As forgiven. Why is it that we've gone, can we hold the, our current Western culture and um, Christian moral authority together? At the moment it's being pulled apart and is that part of God's plan to pull us down so he can bring us back up? Uh, I wouldn't want to say definitely what God's plan is. I, I would love to say we should try and 
arrest the decline and turn things around. It may well be that God's plan is to let things go uh, so that it becomes really clear um, the, the different outcomes that you have uh, with two different kinds of society. So if you go back to uh, the point of the decline of the Roman Empire, so our situation now is not unlike first and second century uh, Rome where you actually had two very different uh, cultural narratives. You had a Christian cultural narrative and then you had a, the Greco-Roman idea about about how society worked and what happened is over a couple of hundred years the Roman one basically disintegrates on itself um, and, and it got to the point where even the non-Christian uh, emperor uh, Justin was saying uh, in admiration but in grudging admiration um, they look only look that those Christians look after not only their own sick but ours as well and he, he was he was appalled that the Christians were uh, so morally uh, distinctive from from the, from the rest of from the west of the rest of society. So who knows where God's going to let things go? It could well be um, in a hundred years' time. God intends this to be the point where you can look at the Christians and go, "Wow, these the Christians are those really strange people who don't kill their old people as soon as they become non-functional. Um, the, the Christians are these really strange people who've got kids who, on the, on balance, are actually more mentally well well adjusted and 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 that will actually be a, a point." of difference from the world around us. I hope it doesn't have to go that way because that means that our, our society really has to disintegrate a whole lot more. So I'm hoping that we can, uh, uh, we can uh, influence our world for good. I think part of being salt and light in the world is that Christians can show a different way of living even in the midst of a world which is doing something differently, which is part of the reason why I'm engaging in the public um, arena to talk about things like family and marriage and euthanasia and abortion and things like that where, where I think it does make make a difference to our world when, when you bring Christian values into that conversation. But I, I can't answer the question you asked, which is where's it going to go from here. My hope and prayer is that we can turn it and around and it goes up, uh, but who knows what God has in store for us. Michael, um, if you need to get a drink, grab, grab yep. a drink. Uh, there's one behind you. Um, just as you're grabbing a drink, I've, I've got a question, perhaps there's another question after mine. Uh, you talked about uh, two aspects of parenting in the image of God. One was discipline, but then also forgiveness. Um, can you unpack for us uh, how those two things work together? Because it may appear that both discipline and forgiveness uh, are two opposing ideas. And if they work together, how, how do you determine as a parent a moment of forgiveness or a moment of discipline? Yep. Um, with our kids, um, we... Um, and when it came to discipline, um, we tried to be very clear um, about w w what were the permissible things that they could do and then what were the boundary conditions. And they were allowed to do anything up to a certain point, but they weren't allowed to do X. And if they did X, there would be consequences for doing X. And if they kept on doing X, then the consequences would get progressively worse. And so a minor infraction when the, the kids were young, uh, it was go and sit on the bottom step and they would be sit, sit there and have some time out for 15 minutes if they'd spoken rudely to their mother or something like that. And if if they were continued to be defiant, it would get progressively worse and they would lose screen time and things like that. And the kids, uh, and, and we were um, very strict in maintaining those boundaries. So when the kids broke them, we always did what we said we would do to be consistent. Um, as we did that, um, we would make sure that the kids, we would never say, mummy won't love you if, or daddy won't love you if, because we wanted them to know that even in the midst of discipline, they were still loved. Um, and when they said, mum, I'm sorry, for doing that, 
um, then we would make sure that we would show compassion for them to demonstrate that they were loved, but at the same time, they would still, um, uh, that, that, that wouldn't necessarily get out of the bottom step time. So they needed to understand that forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean there are no consequences for doing the wrong thing, because we wanted to teach them that in life, if you, if you do things, you, you get drunk and you drive a car and you run someone over and you kill them, you can say sorry as much as you like, and, and, and maybe even the mother of the person that you killed might be able to forgive you down the track, but there's nothing you can do to undo those consequences. So uh, you need to realise that forgiveness and consequences, that you can still have consequences for doing the wrong thing uh, even when you are forgiven and even when you are loved by the person that you have wronged. So that, they're the kind of things that we tried to teach our kids in, in bringing them up, making sure they understood discipline but in the context of love and forgiveness. Any um, follow-up questions on forgiveness, discipline, grace? Yep. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Is that okay? Um, I was just kind of thinking, like, you know, maybe someone could be sitting here today listening and reading this and saying, well, hang on, okay, let's cut out the God word. Yep. I love my kid unconditionally. I discipline them. I'm very strict, but I'm very forgiving. You know, like, yep. let's say they kind of think to themselves, I do all those things. Um, they have a high moral compass there, you know, like, yep. which potentially are based, really are probably based in Christian values and laws and... I suppose, what would you say to a person like that who's thinking, well, hang on, I do all these things. I think I'm raising a fabulous kid because they're, you know, like growing up to know these things and to, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and, and I'd say, well done, congratulations. You're a bit like my mum who inherited all those th things from her mum and did them because they were, without realising it, because they were Christian things. Um, my, my question would be, you might be able to do it for your child, but when your child tries to work out, now, why, why does mum love me just because of who I am. They, they won't actually have a compelling reason for it, and so that value will fade over time. Um, so, yes, I think it can work for one generation, maybe even two generations, where you can kind of pass on um, the, these shared values. But unless there's actually a, a ground for those values, uh, that's something that really makes sense of being able to say to a child, yes, you are absolutely special and I love you for the way that you are, um, that, the, the, that, that, that I think is what you lose over time, is whether your child will be able to parent like you have parented them. Um, I, I like your um, comment about, um, you, you, you talk about sharing parenting with other people and especially if you're in the community. Hmm. Uh, what happens if the parenting is different? parent, I mean, discipline is different and the way you value or look at things are different, both if, it, if the church community or the school community if the parents are different from you what would you, you know, what's your comment on that? I, I think that what matters most of, yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. What matters most of all if, is that the mother and the father in a family are consistent in the way that they parent, and children will pick up that other people do things differently. Uh, the, the conversation that we had with our children a thousand times was, I don't care if their parents will let them go and do X, they are not your parents. You, I am saying you cannot go out to the movies at nine o'clock on a Saturday night, you're only 13. End of story. And, uh, and, and often that was our conversation 
conversation, even when it was other church families who were prepared to let their kids do things that we wouldn't let our kids do. And provided mother and father are united, I, I think that's fine. The kids will work out, okay, every parent, every family does things different, and there's no, there's no one necessarily right way to do it. The only thing that is right is that the parents do it together. Because children, children are devious, children will exploit any kind of weakness between a mother and a father, and they will, they will tear you, they will, will find the wedge and pull you apart. Um, with my kids, almost inevitably, the first question I had to ask when they asked me something was, have you asked your mother first? Uh, because if, you, if, if my wife had already said, no, you can't do it, I had to make sure that I would back her up. That was the consistency, consistency was the really important thing. Then how does the sharing parenting will look like? I think it's often in the church community, it's often around seeing shared values. And so even when there are particular things that you'll do slightly differently, in a church community, um, I would hope that you'll see families which are generous rather than selfish and that as, as your kids say, oh, wow, they're, they're a generous family and we're a generous family. There's a whole lot of... Gener generosity is a good thing. It's good to be unselfish. It's, it's good to, be, to help other people in need. That's what you see those kind of shared values in a community, whereas if you're just one family doing something and all the, the, every other child, every other family that your child knows does something different, it's very different for your, very difficult for your child to see that the, what you do is normal. Um, I think the Christian community normalises positive values. Thank you. Any other questions off the back of that one? Just while you're thinking, I've got another question for you, Michael. You you touched on um, the shared responsibility of a mother and a father. Um, not all children have the privilege of a mother and a father. Does this kind of Christian view of parenting only work for perfect, complete no. families? So the, the Bible acknowledges uh, that, that we are broken human beings and there are, there are families which uh, don't um, meet this model of, of the, the mum and the dad uh, and that God can still work great things out of uh, situations which are less than ideal. In fact, if you look at the history of ancient Israel, most of their families were dysfunctional by, by our terms. That is, you have um, um, adultery, um, incest, uh, various other things, even intergenerational. In the, 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 there are all kinds of problems in the families in the Old Testament and God manages to work good things uh, with pretty ordinary raw material uh, and, and uh, uh, that, that's because God is a good God who loves his people who delights to do good things and so um, part of that whole idea of being flawed but forgiven uh, uh, works the same thing for our families. Our families are flawed but even though they're flawed it doesn't mean that they're therefore doomed to failure. God can actually uh, work positive things out of, out of broken situations. Thank you. Yeah, the questions... Got another one, just what you're thinking. Yeah. Um, you spoke about children being devious. I th thank you for saying that your children are devious because I just thought it was mine. But, uh, so there's two of us here with devious yeah. children. So we're quite aware of children's failure. But um, you don't have to be a parent for very long to work out that there's significant failure on a parent's behalf as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and this is, this is, I think, significant for parents. There's a, there's a significant amount of guilt that we feel when we fail our children. Our kids might not think that we've failed, but often we feel uh, failed as parents. 
Can you comment on um, the hope that the Christian gospel has for parents who feel like failures? I will. Can I say something tangential before I get yes. to that? Uh, one of the most powerful moments uh, with my kids growing up has been when I've stuffed up and I've had to come to them and say, I'm sorry, I lost my temper, I overreacted, will you forgive me? Um, and, and genuinely meaning it, but realising actually I'm modelling to my kids the same kind of response that I want them to do, which is to humbly admit that they've done the wrong thing, to ask for uh, forgiveness and come kind of expecting that that will happen, that, that our relationship can be restored. Um, and just always pretending that you're always right isn't, isn't good because, it, again, it sends all the wrong messages that we are perfect and you've got to strive for per perfection to be able to be vulnerable with your kids. Um, as I said, was a really powerful moment uh, in, in the, my kids' self-understanding of their own um, failings and also what do you do when you've done the wrong thing. Um, but yes, now, now to answer the question, it is that the, the knowledge that God forgives, that God wipes the slate clean and that God can ultimately make perfect even the things that we've really stuffed up. Um, I, I know in this life I am already forgiven so all the things I've done wrong, God doesn't hold it against me but there are things that I've done that have consequences for, for people uh, that I can't unwind in this life, but I know that they won't continue on into eternity, that God will ultimately make things right eventually. Uh, and so knowing both forgiveness now and the hope of restoration later is the thing that actually helps to take away uh, a, a lot of the, the, the guilt feelings. So you, you get rid of the guilt feelings by restoring the relationship with the person that you've hurt and then the, the sense of continuing brokenness. I know that God will make it right one day. Any other questions? I want to give people an opportunity if they want. Um, I've got another one for you. Uh, I want to change tact a little bit. And uh, just we, as we were discussing earlier, the, uh, the internet screens uh, kind of came up as a prominent issue and something that we didn't grow up with per se, or at least if we're, um, you know, 35 or older. Um, this is a big thing for our kids. It's, it's uncharted territory for us as parents outside of our experience as children. Now, um, you're not here because you're an expert on social media or the internet or that kind of thing, but do you have any um, kind of uh, thoughts around uh, what you discussed with Felicity about kind of practices that you had as a family for screens, the internet, uh, and aspects around this particularly significant area of kids' yeah. experience. I, I think with technology there are really three uh, three problems, three three issues that have to be faced, and they're, they're a bit the the way that you handle them is different in each case. Uh, one issue has to do with the content, the fact that the kids will find stuff online which is inappropriate. Uh, the second is to do with the fact that um, it, it, uh, life is always on, uh, whereas when I was growing up, it was okay to have downtime and you got bored and eventually you'd go and read a book or go and kick a footy in a, the backyard. Uh, now my kids, they are, they are never more than a, an arm's length away from a device and so there's never, there's never any downtime and particularly uh, you can be on your devices at 2am in the morning, Snapchatting with your friends and all of that, so the, the, the constant stimulation. So content, 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 content,